I wonder if you've ever got some prescription or over-the-counter medicine and had a look at the side effects. Have you ever done that? And you get that headache medication that says, helpfully, may cause headaches. Or you get that hay fever medication that you look at it and you think, well, if he's going to give me all these things or potentially give me all these things, I'll stick with the hay fever. It probably sounds less severe. This is one of those passages of the Bible that I think when we read it may cause in us sort of side effects when we listen to it. I think we need to be upfront and honest about that as we start. We may read it and think, oh no, not this passage. I never know what to do with this passage. We may read it and just be curious, what on earth is he going to say about this, this morning? Or we may read it and feel quite defensive. I don't like this passage. I don't like what it has to say. Or you may think something totally different. Or you may be half asleep. But those are the kinds of things that it can cause in us. Can I encourage all of us this morning to come to this passage afresh? To come to it really with open hearts and open minds. This is a beautiful piece of finely balanced writing by Paul. He won't let anybody off the hook. And he wants us all to submit to Christ. That is really where it starts. And that is where it ends. And really what Paul is talking about in this passage is those relationships key in society. Those relationships that have some kind of societal bond around them. So marriage, the parent-child relationship, and we we will look at it as employee-employer, not slaves and master. But this is a passage that also needs to be read very carefully in context, because Paul's world was not our world. It's not the same. So we can't just equate what Paul writes about to what we then have to understand. Also, before we get going, I want to comment on some, some things that I won't be talking about this morning. Literally, because we'd be here for hours and hours if we talked about everything in this passage. I won't be able to comment this morning about when these relationships, as sadly they do, sometimes break down. We just won't have the time to cover that this morning. But all I will say is if, if you're in one of those relationships, any of these relationships are going to be talked about, and that is you today. You know, please do talk to a trusted friend, talk to a small group leader, come and talk to one of us on the leadership team. We would love to pray with you through that. And also, the other thing I won't really be able to address in any depth is um, when Paul is writing here, what he's presuming is that both parts of the relationship are followers of Jesus. Now, I know this morning that there are those of you who are here whose partners are not a Christian. There are those of you who are here this morning whose children or parents are not a Christian. There are those of you, many of you, who are in the workplace whose employer is not a Christian. And so what we have to do is we have to also say that this passage is not just about people in those Christian relationships, but it's about all of us. Because the reference point is not the other person, but it is always Christ himself. So our behavior is linked to Christ, not the other person. So just another bit of background to Paul's thinking before we set off. From Galatians 3, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one, in Christ Jesus. The cross of Jesus Christ is the level ground when we all come before God as sinners in need of a saviour. So let's have a look at the first verse of this passage, verse 21. Actually, here's verse 21 and 22. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, I'm not one for normally delving too deeply into Greek manuscripts, really, because I don't understand them. But this week, I felt I had to do quite a lot of digging around this passage to try and work out what is Paul saying here. 
and what isn't he saying? This is how the original Greek actually reads. I've helpfully put it in English. For me, really. I'm sure all of you can read New Testament Greek. See the difference? Being submissive to one another in fear of Christ. Wives to their own husbands as to the Lord. What's missing in that second version? Well, it's the original version. What's missing? You notice a word that doesn't come twice. Submit doesn't come twice in the original. I think that is massively important as we look at how we interpret this passage. Because what Paul is really saying is, however you submit to one another, that is the kind of submission that needs to be highlighted in the marriage relationship. There is no different word used. It's one word used. It's used at the beginning, and then it keeps going. So we have to ask this question, what does this word submission mean? And again, we have to do a bit of digging. Our word submission in English has this idea of sort of subservience, you know, do as you're told type submission. You know, um, I often talk about our dog because she's one of the most delightful things in our lives and also one of the most frustrating and annoying things. I'm sick of people laughing out of their car windows at me as I walk down the road (laughs) with my dog pulling like this. I am sick of having my muscles torn in my shoulder as my dog pulls excessively. So this weekend, we have decided to have a concerted effort to try again to get our dog to walk more respectably on a lead. And we've had limited success, haven't we? Very limited. But I want my dog to do as I tell her. I want her to submit to my authority. That is how we use that word submit. That is the English kind of word. But actually, in the Greek... The word submit that Paul uses here is not an authority-based word. It's not do as I I tell you, but rather it's to do with align yourself to me. Get behind me. It's that kind of word. Prioritize the other. So submit yourselves to one another is about prioritizing the other. Prioritize the other person. And you see what? This is totally consistent through the New Testament. Look at this from Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. God first, live in reverence to God, and then submit again to one another. And so what we find is that the best possible human relationships are where we look out for the needs of one another, where we're not selfish, where we're not thinking purely about what this is like for me. And following Jesus, and we saw this last week, and we see it through the second part of Ephesians, is never just about private holiness. It's never just about some kind of seeking out those special experiences of me and Jesus. But actually following Jesus has earthly practical applications. Last week, it was all about sex. It was about drink. It was about greed. And this week, it is about these three types of relationship. But at its heart is reverence to Jesus. So I want us to think about this question as we go through. Do we live like this out of reverence for Christ? Do you live in submission to other people? Do you live prioritizing the other person? Or do you live selfishly? Now, if I had to answer that, hand on heart, honestly, the best I could probably say would be occasionally. Sometimes. 
Maybe on a Wednesday or Thursday, but not on a Monday and Tuesday. You know, it's that kind of answer. It comes with so many caveats to it. But then I want to take another step back and say, well, if that is me, you know, I will stand here and say, I believe the Bible is God's word to us. It's, It's the word of God. But if I'm not living that out, what does it make me? Well, it makes me a hypocrite, doesn't it? We can't read a passage like this and say, actually, this doesn't account to me. This isn't about me. If we believe that this is God's word, then this has to resonate in our hearts and lives. You see, time and time again, Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, as they wrote, as they spoke, they wouldn't just allow the gospel to just be all about eternity. It is about the here and now as well. Yes, it ends in eternity, and it starts now eternity. But it's about how we live. So let's move on. Let's presume we can do verse 21. And let's see how then Paul drills it down into life. Now, I'm really conscious this morning that not all of these next verses apply to all of us. Many of us this morning are single. Many of us don't have children. Many of us don't have parents who are alive. Some of us are self-employed and so don't have an employer. Some of us are retired and so don't have an employer or are not an employee. So as we go through it, it's one of those things. Let's be gracious with one another. Let's take those bits that apply to us. But hopefully there are still principles from all of it that will apply in different areas of life. So let's dive in with wives and husbands. Before we actually do this, I will get there eventually. Sorry, I keep on putting caveats before I say anything. Before we get there, it's worth saying as well that marriage is not the highest calling for the Christian. It is not the highest calling. What does Paul say the highest state for a Christian is? To be single. To be single. It says in 1 Corinthians 7, So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it is best to be unmarried just as I am. I think there is a real danger in Christian circles that somehow marriage becomes idolized. Now, marriage can be a delight. It can be amazing. You know, just ask Claire. She will testify to that. (laughs) But it can also be really hard work. It can be really hard work. It can take lots of negotiation. It can take lots of talking. We've been married for 18 years, and there is so much that we don't yet get right. I know there are people in the room here today, and you've probably been married for 60 years, some people. Nod if that's you. Yes, I can see a couple of nods going over there and over there. Have you got it all sorted? Eric and Margaret, Ralph and Pam? Anybody else who's been married that length of time? I can see some shakes of the head. It's a constant learning curve. This thing called marriage, we never get totally sorted. But before we can get into what marriage looks like now, another caveat coming up, We need to think about what marriage was like in a Greco-Roman town. Here's a picture of a wedding ceremony. Just to give you something to look at. Marriage. It's not the most helpful image. I'll get rid of that. (laughs) These frescoes, they were terribly inappropriate. Right, let's go back to that. That's the kind of thing that would have happened at a marriage anyway. But a Greco-Roman marriage was very different to marriage today. Very, very different. First of all, married people, um, people got married at different ages. The way that a marriage ceremony, as you can see, was incredibly different to what we have. And if we read this passage without thinking through what a Roman marriage would have looked like, it's almost like we go and eat an orange expecting it to be an apple. You get in a terrible mess, even though it's still fruit because we haven't understood the context. Just listen to this about Roman marriage. 
Under Roman law, the father had absolute authority over his children, and to a lesser extent, his wife. He had the right and duty to seek a good and useful match for his children, and might arrange a child's betrothal long before he or she came of age. The coming of age was 12 for a girl and 14 for a boy. That's when marriage quite often would take place. To further the interests of their birth families, sons of the elite should follow their families into public life, and daughters should marry into respectable families. Also, this kind of voluntary submission was not the order of the day. The wife was seen as the property of the husband. One contemporary writer, we'll get rid of that again, wrote this. Women are to be praised if they subordinate themselves to their husbands. Basically, a good woman does as she's told. That was the kind of mindset of people in Paul's day. So what I want to suggest this morning is that when Paul talks about this, he is being totally radical. Totally radical in linking the marriage relationship back to our relationship with Christ and saying it models Christ and the church. He's putting marriage on a totally different setting. Wives, submit to your husbands. So if this word submission means prioritize your husbands, get behind your husbands, support your husbands, it is nothing to do with control. It is nothing to do with lording it over somebody, but it has everything to do with this kind of relationship that models Christ and the church. But you know, you read this passage and you think so much damage, I believe, has been done by misinterpreting what he said here. So much damage has been done to women, trying to make them obey everything that a man will say, trying to dominate, trying to control. And um, I was doing something um, the other week, I had to do a course on domestic violence. And, you know, today there is so much abuse happens to women at the hands of men seeking to dominate. None of this... I believe, and you can check this out, you can challenge me over it, but none of it, I believe, has any root in this passage that we find here. This is about something totally different, being like Christ to one another. Look at verse 23. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is to the church. So what's all that about? Well, Paul is taking us right back to the creation ordinances here. He's taking us right back to Adam and Eve. If you want to know a bit more about what I think about this, if you go onto the church website and look, on it, look up a sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we looked at this in rather more detail. But we think about the head as being the ruler, don't we? So if I say head teacher, what does that mean? Somebody shout it out. The boss. We talk about the head coach of a sports team. We talk about the head chef in a restaurant. And what we're doing is we're using parts of the body as metaphors to explain what we mean. And we use other ones, don't we? So if I say, I love you with all my heart, what do I mean? Go on, someone shout it out. I'm not confessing it to you all, just what, what do I mean? <laughs> what would I mean? Yeah, everything. It's, it's an emotional response, isn't it? It's that kind of deep emotional response. In the first century, though, their metaphors were very different. So if I wanted to go and say to somebody, I love you with all my heart, that would basically mean I love you with my decision-making. It's not a very romantic thing. The heart was about decision-making in the first century. If I wanted to say, I love you in that kind of way, what I would have to say, and I find this quite funny, so I'm going to say it. I would have to say, I have deep feelings for you in my bowels. <laughs> because that was the part of the body that was used to describe love. 
That was where affection was found. I was listening to a priest comment on this passage this week, and he says, I live a celibate life, but even I know that is not the best chat-up line. (laughs) So what about the head? What is the head about? Well, the head was viewed in the first century as the source. It was the source of life. You know, you can't live without your head. You can live without all kinds of other parts of your body, but you don't last very long without your head. And so when it says that Christ is the head of the church, it's that Christ is the source of the church, the source of life for the church. You know how we would talk about the head of a river? That's where the river begins. It's where the springs bring forth water that then you get a river flowing from of it. From it. So Adam is the source of Eve. If you think back to Genesis, if you know the accounts, what happens when Eve is formed? She's formed out of the rib of Adam. And she is the very, he is the very source of her life. And he is also her nurturer, her source of emotional and physical affection. So husband is head in that kind of way. The source of the wife's um, life, of, of physical affection and emotional strength. What does this then mean practically if we take that line of thinking? Well, again, it's not a word that has anything to do with control. But it's about giving life. It's about being source. It's about being the person of nurture and affection. It's the instruction, I believe, not to repression, but to freedom. What did Christ bring to us? Did he repress us? Does he oppress us? No, he brings us freedom and life. And I believe that is the same instruction here. So the question is again, do we live like this? Is this how we're living? Sorry, I'm going back in two there. Do we live like this? out of reverence for Christ. Then verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Now we may think, okay, Paul, that's pretty obvious. You know, most people in our culture today get married because they love one another. They love each other. You think of the standard um, sort of Western way of meeting somebody. You meet somebody, you go out with somebody, you then get engaged, and then some point later you get married. Just think about a Roman Greek marriage for a moment. You're 12 if you're a woman, You may be 14 or 15 if you're a man. You may be slightly older, but it's from that sort of age. You haven't met your husband or wife until the wedding night. You meet them as you marry them. You meet them and you find, actually, I don't really like this person. That could have happened quite a lot, couldn't it? You imagine if you'd been set up with somebody by your parents to get married, who would they have picked for you? I don't even want to ask that question. They're probably listening online, so I'm not going to go any further. What would have happened? Well, I think a lot of these relationships would have been incredibly difficult. They would not have been based around love. They would have been based around duty and having to stick together. And so what Paul says is model your relationship of Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wives. And the word he uses for love is agape love. It's not erotic love. It's not romantic love. But it's the same kind of love that Christ has for the church. This love, this this deep care for somebody. And so you see, what we find here is there is a lot of mutuality with these relationships. If you're going to love somebody like that, you're going to put their needs first. If you're going to submit to somebody, you're going to put their needs first. If we're going to do all of this out of reverence for Christ, we put Christ first, and then we put one another first. Let's forward wind 2,000 years. What does this mean for Christians who are married today? Well, I think there is a call for us to model Christ. Model Christ. I think that is the primary call. Out of reverence to Christ, live like this. This is not about power games. It's not about 
repression. It's not about getting each other to do what you want. But it's about prioritizing and putting the other first. So the call for wives, this call to submission, is to prioritize, I believe, your husbands. Now, 21st century life can be very busy, can't it? And it can be very easy in a marriage relationship to have everything else stacked in life. It might be work, it might be, if you've got children, it might be children, pets, um, shopping, all the rest of it, and then somewhere right down here comes spending time on the marriage relationship. I don't think that's what Paul wants for us. Paul says, invert the whole thing. Put that first. Get that right so it models Christ, and then sort the rest out afterwards. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. No small ask, is it? If you're a husband here today, what an amazing call that Paul has placed on us. Putting our wives first, just as Christ put the church first. I was chatting to to Chris this week about this passage, and he told me um, the story about a lady who said to him, I'll live in submission when you love me like Christ loves the church. I thought, actually, it sounds quite funny in a way. But actually, it's not like that, is it? Because we don't trade off one against the other. What we do, our response, is to live in reverence to Christ. It's not in response to how the other person lives. Everything is rooted back in Christ. So again, do we live like this? Out of reverence for Christ. Is this how you are living today? Let's move on. Children and parents. The language shifts now. Because the submission of the child is not in the same way. It's not a voluntary alignment, but it's a word that is obey. And it does mean obey. It does mean in the same kind of way that we would use the word. It says, verse 2, honor your father and mother. The fifth of the Ten Commandments, and it's the one that has a promise. Because God has ordained the world in such a way, Paul says, that actually when we follow this, we see blessings as a result. So why is there then this call to obedience. Well, it's so that parents can model Christ to their children. And so that Christ can learn what it, that, so that the children can learn what it is like to follow Christ. But remember I said at the beginning, this passage is really balanced. It doesn't let F anyone off the hook. Look at verse 4. I used to love quoting this verse to my dad. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. If today you you are sat here and you are a parent of non-adult children, because the word here for children is little children, then the call is to model Christ to them. Model Jesus to them. You know, there is one of the reasons in this country that the church has declined, and it's often an overlooked reason. But it's in the 1950s and the 1960s, Christian parents stopped teaching the next generation about Jesus. And what we've seen is a kind of cliff edge of people who know less and less about the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I encourage you, if you are a parent today, to model Jesus in your home life? It's one of the promises we ask um, parents when we dedicate babies to make. It's to say, tell the stories of Jesus. Talk about Jesus in the home. But let's turn the tables a bit. You know, I'm in my 40s. Both my parents are alive. And like I said, they're probably both listening online, so I have to be careful what I say. Do I have to obey my parents? No. That stopped, I believe, when I became an adult, that need to to obey. 
But what I do have to do is the next part, is to honor my mother and my father. Now, I don't want to offer any kind of blanket application here because I know sometimes people have very difficult relationships with their their parents if their parents are alive. So it is each really up to each of us to sort of see actually what does that mean in my context. But for me, actually, that just means prioritizing time for them, actually making sure that we have good time, good relationships with each other. But actually, I was always thinking as well about this passage. There may be some of us who have got slightly older children but are still getting them to obey. Actually, that is not what Paul is on about here. There has to be that change that we allow in each family for children to actually grow up and start to honor God themselves. Let's ask that question again. Do we live like this out of reverence for Christ? Slaves and masters, let's carry on. We'll be slightly briefer on this one. This is written to a totally different setting to ours. And what Paul doesn't do here is he doesn't comment about the, the sort of the slavery of his day. His um, task here really is to say, in these relationships, honor Christ, not to challenge those relationships itself. And this passage has been used over the centuries for people who've said this justifies slavery. Because Paul says slaves should behave like this. I think we need to reject that totally. This is not what Paul is on about at all. What Paul is saying is in whatever relationships you find yourselves in, make sure you honor Christ. Now, none of us here are slaves. None of us here have to do as we are told indefinitely. But many of us have employees or employers. Many of us, even if we don't work in a paid capacity, will do voluntary work or will look after people and have some kind of work in that kind of sense. You know, I have a a contract with you as a church, but I am not your slave. That is not how it works. So what I thought I would do this week is actually look up under my BU form of um, sort of terms of appointment, which me and Chris are both on the same. What do I actually have to do as a minister? Do you want to know what I actually have to do according to my terms of appointment? Anyone like to guess? No? It's very simple says this, I have to be available in the manse should anyone need me. That's all it says. So I have to be available if anyone wants to ring me or anyone wants to knock on the door and see me. That's through there. So I just have to be there. It doesn't talk about preaching. It doesn't talk about leading. It doesn't talk about chairing meetings or visiting people in hospital or anything like that. That's all it says. Now, there's a legal reason for that, but I won't bore you with that. But you see, I could say, well, that, that's my role, is just to go and sit, drink coffee all day, do very little, and sit around. Claire, don't smile at me. That's not the right time to smile at me on that one. <laughs> <coughs> now, obviously, that is a nonsense. That would not be glorifying to God. It would not be um, the right way for me to behave, even if it did actually tick that legal requirement. And what Paul will say here is that in any kind of work relationship, Don't work as if you're working for a boss, but work as if you're working for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Verses 6 and 7, as slaves of Christ, not as slaves of somebody else, but as slaves of Christ, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. It's very easy, isn't it, in the life of a church or in a workplace to actually work for human commendation, to want people to say, well done, to look for encouragements all the time and to do those kind of things. That was good to get encouraged. 
But actually, Paul says, don't make that your priority. But make serving God your priority. Do everything as if you're doing it to the Lord. You see, we worship God when we do that. We worship God when we do all of these things. We worship God when our lives reflect him, when actually our whole lives are lived out in reverence to Christ. Sometimes I think we hijack this word worship and make it purely about what we do together, about singing and praying and those kind of things, whereas worship is primarily about our response to God. Is your life a life of worship? Do you live in this kind of way? And again, there's the balance, verse 9, masters or employees or team leaders, whatever it is. Treat people as if it is Christ before you. You may be here today and you may have people, if you like, under you in a work kind of environment who you're responsible for. Do you treat them when they come to you as if it is Christ who is standing before you? Or do you treat them as if it is somebody less than that? What does Paul say? There is no favoritism. We're on the place of level ground at the cross. So do you see that as we look through this passage, this is incredibly radical stuff. It's calling for the world to be lived in a very different way because we're following Jesus. It's about radiating Christ in marriages, in parent-child relationships, in the workplace. And so I just want to leave you with that one question we've asked as we've gone through. Is this you? Is this me? Are our lives lived out in reverence to Christ? Or are we just selfish? How are we living? I want us just to take a couple of minutes, just of silence. And then, Danny, if we could sing that, that song, that'd be great. Mike, we're going to sing Blessed Assurance in a moment, if we could just pull that up. And just to think, how is my life lived? And is there anything at the moment I need to change in light of what Paul is saying here? So just a couple of minutes, just of quiet, and then our leaders just in a brief prayer. Paul writes, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Lord, we thank you that we are yours, that you are ours. Thank you that you have called us to follow you. Just want to pray that in each relationship that we find ourselves in, whether it is at church, in the workplace, in the home, You'll help that relationship to honor you, to be lived out as worship, to be lived out in the way that your word commands us to. So that your name may be glorified, so that people may see the light of Christ. Lord, may people look at our lives and say, this is the story of their life, that their life is lived out in worship. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.